I wrote a piece two months ago. I think start a third party now. Most start a, a radically centrist, common sense, get shit done party. That's where most Americans are. I think we're at one of these unique moments in American history where there's a real opportunity to start something new. It's gonna be hard, but it's all gonna be hard. Welcome to What's Next, your next favorite political podcast, where your hosts, Emily Matthews and Daniel Hare, bring you great guests each week to have conversations about how to restore the conservative movement. And now, in the words of President Bartlett, What's Next? All right, welcome everybody back to What's Next. We are so excited to have you. And joining us today, is Joe Walsh. Uh, Joe is a former presidential candidate and a former United States congressman from Illinois, uh, also a uh, radio host and podcast host and a uh, voice out there for a lot of us who are in this spot uh, of uh, conservatives who are a little wayward here, don't know where we all fit in. And uh, I think, uh, as you'll hear from our conversation today, uh, a lot of great insights and uh, some ideas forward uh, for how we can uh, make some corrective action here. So, uh, Congressman, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show with us. Uh, Daniel, Emily, it's great to be with you. Don't call me Congressman. Call me Joe. (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I I, uh, I was interviewed for my other podcast. So I was interviewing uh, a former judge uh, who I know well and went to law school uh, at the same law school as me. And so, uh, but I, I referred to her as judge. She's retired judge, but was on the bench 20 years. Uh, and uh, I keep calling her judge. Keep, Don't call me judge. I'm a retired judge. Like, but I was well-trained. I addressed the bench in a certain way. I addressed my <laughs> representatives in Congress a certain way. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, Daniel, you're right. And thank you. I will take that title to my grave. And some of the people I served with, they loved being, they still like being called congressman. You can yeah. call me Joe, call me right. shithead, call me whatever you want to call me. Yeah. <laughs> That's why you're refreshing. Well, uh, just to start off, for, and for those who maybe aren't as familiar with you as those that follow you on Twitter, like I'm sure Emily and I do, <laughs> and have tracked you in recent years, how did you get your start in uh, conservative and Republican politics? Uh, give us a little bit of your backstory. I'm a, uh, I'm a teacher and a social worker by trade. I've always been kind of a limited government, more of a libertarian kind of a philosophy. So it was always my philosophy to go work on the south side of Chicago. I didn't want the government helping low-income white, black, and brown kids. I wanted to do that myself. So that's always been kind of my background and my politics. I got, I, I literally ran for office back in 2010 because I was pissed off about the fact that both parties we're bankrupting future generations. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, as I was reviewing and looking at some of your uh, history, it's interesting how I feel like you have uh, yeah, gone kind of through some iterations as the party has changed as well. Talk about that a little bit. It's so odd. I, and Emily and Daniel, I know you probably feel this way too. I Look, I, I was an outspoken Tea Party person. When right. I went to Congress and I, I still identify as a Tea Party conservative because the Tea Party to me is limited government, balanced budgets, restrained government spending. That's, that's why I ran. I still hold those beliefs, but because I'm anti-Trump and anti-Trumpism, 
I'm I'm a rhino or I'm a moderate or I'm a squish or I'm a socialist. It before Trump, you two know this. Before Trump, you were defined by where you stood on the issues. Now post Trump, it's all where you stand on Trump, and that's pretty depressing, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've just kind of explained what drew you to the Tea Party. And, um, you know, how do you view the Tea Party now looking back on it? Do you think, you know, there were there were issues with it that led us to where we are? You know, like, do you have any regrets with that? Um, I mean, you guys Tons. did, of course, a lot of great work. But yeah. No, Emily, yeah. you're right. Um, look, there were there were two strands to the Tea Party, the way I look back on it. There was the anti-all-the-spending strand, and then there was more the populist, nationalist strand. I think what drew a lot of us to Congress 10 years ago was the government spending issue. But when I ran against Donald Trump back two years ago now, I mean, I publicly apologized for everything I did that helped lead to Trump. Because there were times when I went to Washington, I was younger. I was an angry young Tea Partier, and I was <laughs> I was pissed off at Boehner and pissed off at Obama about a lot of things. And there were times when, during the course of my anger, I would engage in ugly personal politics. And I've apologized for a lot of that, but a lot of that is what led to the most horrible human being we've ever had in the White House, Donald Trump. So, Emily, to answer your question, I will go to my grave knowing that I helped lead to Trump. That's something I got to live with, and I'm just dedicating the rest of my life to trying to rectify it. Yeah, and just one more follow-up on the Tea Party piece, because I do think it's really interesting. I don't think it gets talked about enough, because... As we've watched over the last, uh, you know, six to eight years uh, as, at the conclusion of the uh, Obama administration and for sure during uh, President Trump's four years, um, you know, spending didn't come down. Uh, deficits did not come down. But the Tea Party did <coughs> seem to kind of dissipate, at least in its intensity, if not in its actual uh, collectiveness at, at, at all. So I, I wonder, like, what happened? Like, where, where are your... Tea Party compatriots, what, what are they doing right now? Do they still care about this stuff? Or I really no, don't know. I'm, I'm curious. No, no. And so so what happened is, so we all went to Washington back in 2010 to stop all the government spending. Uh, we didn't. And I found out in about one afternoon in Washington that Republicans had no interest in, gov- in, in uh, decreasing government spending as much as Democrats didn't either. So after a year or two, when it became clear that Republicans were not going to limit government spending, all the Tea Party people out there in the real world, yeah. they became they became pretty depressed and they became disenchanted. And that kind of that kind of then made it possible for Trump to come along, the demagogue that he was. And what he did, uh, Emily and Daniel, was he tapped into the uglier aspect of the Tea Party, the populist nationalist. He's the guy who said, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to keep brown people out of here. Well, let's be honest. That was part of the Tea Party, too. And Trump tapped into that. Here's the other thing, though. Guys like Jim Jordan. I was best friends with Jim Jordan. Mark Meadows. All of these guys. At, we, we held a press conference every day yelling about Obama and the deficit. 
Right. Once Trump, once Trump becomes president, they don't say shit about it. And I've had enough private conversations with them guys. Privately, they'll admit that they only kept their mouths quiet because Trump was the president. Um, but, but that doesn't matter. They, they turned their back on that issue. With that, with um, Jim Jordan and them, you know, I'm curious, you said that they keep their mouth shut and then behind closed doors, which I think we all knew, you know, feel a different way. Do you feel like for them, they were motivated by fear that he'd come after them with a Twitter attack? Or do you feel like they just really were in the club? You know, they felt special with Trump and they really had a lot of, you know, uh, respect for him. Um, Was it more motivated by the fear of the Twitter attack, I guess? Yeah, no, Emily, what, what, what they've told me over the past three years privately, these Republican members of Congress, yeah. they've, they've told me two or three things. They, they, they're, they, they agree, most of them agree with what I say publicly about Trump. They think he's a bad guy. They think he's bad for the country and bad for the party. They're not afraid of him. They're afraid of the voters. Like they know Trump has a hold on the voters and they don't want to lose that. So they're, they're deathly afraid of having Trump's voters come after them. But I've had guys like Jordan and others tell me privately, we know Trump's a jerk, but the Democrats are socialist and they're evil, Joe. So I've ju- we've got to do whatever we can to beat them. I hear a lot of that privately too. Yeah. Following up, too, on the policy piece, we talked a little bit about the fiscal uh, policies uh, of recent years in the Republican Party. Uh, You know, back in the uh, Reagan to Bush to Bush years, sort of there was this developing idea that conservatism within the Republican Party was that three-legged stool of fiscal conservatism, social conservatism, and also foreign policy uh, piece as well. Um, and we've talked kind of through it. it. It doesn't appear that fiscal policy has has remained in that stool anymore in the new era. It, it, maybe as it pertains to tax cuts, but certainly as as it pertains to the budget or deficits and debt. Um, wh- wh- where do you feel like the policy is uh, now for the GOP? Uh, you know, going forward, uh, as it pertains to how it was with that three legged stool that we used to know. It's become a hundred percent. Culture war bullshit. That, that's, that's it. Uh, again, going way back because we did not deliver on the size of government and the debt. Uh, then they quickly turned to all the culture war stuff. Hmm. Um, we're being canceled. No more Dr. Seuss. You can't wave the American flag. You can't say Merry Christmas. All of this stuff. It, this is now what they tap into 24-7. And it's, it's, I'm in an unusual position, guys, because I'm not an original never Trumper. I voted for him in 2016. And I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that because I, I, I'm glad you said that because I did want to, I meant to clarify that before because some people were always that way, but you, yeah, transitioned from one to the other. So uh, I think that's important <laughs> for credibility and for things well, that happen. Well, yeah. And, and, and uh, so I, I know the Trump supporter. I come from the same world as them. Uh, I, I was people, Emily and Daniel, you guys probably didn't like me as much seven or eight years ago. I, I was more of a, 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 a culture war guy and, and, and I talked a lot about some of the culture issues. So I understand these voters and I understand why they so glommed on to Trump. 
Uh, but right now, Daniel, to answer your question, it's all the culture war stuff. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I can just say this, of course, I, I was never Trump from the beginning. But like, I think it's just so great that, you know, I don't hold anything against you saying, hey, I realized I was wrong about this. Um, but yeah. also, I've had to learn a lot of humility that there's a lot that I didn't know about those voters, you know, and I think in America, and this is kind of what this podcast is about, like, we have to see the humanity in our neighbors, and whether they be, you know, super progressive, or, you know, more on the Trump side, I mean, I've had to work on forgiving and, and having a little bit more humility and understanding where we're all coming and from. Emily, I love what you said. I love what you said right there, because my God, it's like I've been naked the last three or four years because I'm out publicly having to apologize for what I did. I really believe all of us Republicans created Trump. The right. Tea Party, Tea Party people like me riled the voters up, but the Republican establishment ignored these voters. And we're primarily talking about older white men and women. They had legitimate fears and concerns. Their country was changing so quickly, and the party just kind of ignored them instead of educating them about LGBT issues, in, uh, about climate issues. The party ignored them, and that created the climate, again, for the demagogue like Trump to come along and scoop them up. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, from your unique position too, like I, I know a lot of uh, a number of pundits look back now and can draw the line between George Wallace to Pat Buchanan to Newt Gingrich to Sarah Palin and then to Trump. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that framing of how we got here? Oh, I think that's a big part of it, but I think you can play that game with anybody. Right. You can play that game. You can draw that line through John Boehner and Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio. And, and yeah. again, I, th I think the Republican Party base, this is what we're talking about. They are radicalized now. I mean, think about that. The entire base of one of our major political parties is radicalized. How the hell did that happen? Well, and you and I, we, the three of us just said it. Uh, draw that line from Wallace to Buchanan to the Tea Party to Trump. There you see the radicalization. But then again, the party establishment ignoring their voters. They ignored their base for a long time. Um, so I think everybody contributed to it. And I think we really need to understand that so it never happens again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, when you mentioned that you were initially a supporter of Trump and then there was a point at which you decided to break and go a different way, uh, share with us about that point, uh, because I think everybody's got their own story for when they and for any of us, for even those of us that were you know kind of in the never camp. I mean, like for me, it was early, but it was I mean, it was the. Uh, you know, the John McCain comment in the 2015 primary of mm. uh, liking people that weren't captured. Like that was, okay, well, that's it for that. And I'll move on to the <laughs> others. I didn't really think much of it because at that time, he still really wasn't in my head a true candidate. I mean, like, he was like not real. Like, it was so surreal. Right. I didn't think much of it. Right. And not, not you, Daniel, but a lot of my elite, and I call them elite, never Trumper friends, yeah. they never took him seriously that's from right. the beginning. I'm that's myself right. included. No, yeah. I, and Emily, I want to tell you, when he came down that escalator in 2015, I'm on the radio. I, I mean, talk radio is my background. I'm on the radio all over the country. 
And when he came down that escalator and said, I'm going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Mexicans are bad people. The entire party establishment dismissed him and said he's a joke. I went on the radio that night and every Republican voter who called in said, amen, it's about time. I love him. Right away there, I saw, oh my God, he's connected with the base. Um, Look, I am guilty of a lot of things in life. I'm guilty of this. I never took, I never paid attention enough to Trump until he got elected. I didn't realize until after he became president what a thoroughly horrible human being he was. I figured he's a goof. He's an idiot. He'll hire a couple good people. Maybe he'll play golf for four years and maybe we'll get a few good judges and some tax cuts and that will be it. Uh, that's on me. I should have done a better job. Um, once he got elected, and I started to pay attention to him every single day, I began to turn south on him right away because I realized every time he opens his mouth, he lied. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I can't have that in a president, no matter who the president is. The other thing that bothered me, Daniel, right out of the gate was Russia screwed with our election to help get him elected. And Donald Trump, after he won, didn't give a damn about that. I thought right. that was like horrible. What an act of disloyalty. So I started to go south on him every day, week, and month after he became president. And remember, I'm in conservative talk radio, so I'm beginning to lose my audience and lose my advertisers, <laughs> which wasn't good. But then, yeah. Daniel, to answer your question, the final straw for me was Helsinki the summer of 2018. Yeah. When he did that, when he gave the middle finger to our intelligence community in front of the world... I went on the radio that night and I said, I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure he's never reelected. Uh, that was the final straw for me. Yeah. You know, I saw a recent poll that was saying um, the Republic, and I'm, I'm not going to get the numbers right, so I shouldn't, but that the majority, or maybe it's like at least half of the Republican base prefers Putin to Biden. Yes. For our own president. I, I wish I could, I had the percentages in front of me, but it was wild. I just, anyway. it is. No, Emily, can, can, it, like, it can you imagine that pre Trump? Yeah. Yeah. Well, think about that. And, <laughs> and again, you got, you guys know this. And because, again, because of where I come from, I still engage with thousands of Trump supporters every day, even today. And yeah. look, all the, all the polling is accurate. They all believe Trump won. Uh, they, most of them don't believe January 6th was a big deal at all. Right. Um, we've got a vaccination problem in this country because way too many of them don't want to get vaccinated. So they're living in an, that's why I say they're radicalized. They're, the base of our party is living in an alternative reality. And Tucker Carlson sucks. What a coward. <laughs> Emily, Daniel, and Hannity. Hannity's an idiot, but the, but and Tuck, but Tucker's not an idiot. He's a smart guy, which makes yeah. him so dangerous yeah. because they are feeding these people this crap every night. Yeah, it's a. Uh... You know, I was having a conversation with my dad yesterday, actually, about that, about the because we have someone that we know that that won't get vaccinated, and you know, um, just kind of unpacking that. And and he's like, you know, there's two sides. I was like, there's not 
two sides to science. I mean, the fact that this has even become politicized just blows my mind. And there needs to be great responsibility for people that have such huge audiences that people look up to as knowing things, you know, and and I think Americans are starting to wake up to the fact that and I mean, I hope at least they are that so many of these pundits, they don't know, we have access to all the information now. It's not like news, you know, media has all the information that they disperse anymore. You know, we can read stuff anywhere on the internet, you can learn, you can compare sources. And I would hope that people would think more critically. But, you know, sadly, it, it a not, lot of people don't. No, you're right, Emily. And the the GOP base, not. They, they are living in the talk radio Fox News world. It's a different yeah. world. Yeah, to, for on, sure. on that real quick, because I asked Tim Miller this. I'm just curious, kind of your thoughts. What What do you think the percentage of the GOP as it's currently constituted is in that, the as you're describing it, the radicalized base? Like if we're kind of parsing out, as we were talking about it with Tim Miller trying to figure out, okay, who's gettable? Like who can be pulled into our camp of like the kind of go alongs, not really paying attention, but voted for Trump because they didn't, you know, uh, uh, want to go along with whatever progressive policies they didn't like on the other side, but aren't the radicalized groups. So we're kind of trying to break those up into some buckets. Uh, have you looked much at that? or what, I mean, since you're on the ground talking to people every day, I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of what's the percentage that's just kind of gone right now in that radicalized base and what's still in the kind of maybe they're <laughs> gettable to like kind of our line of thinking. So 74 million people voted for that jackass. Of the 74 million people, I'm a dark Irishman, guys. Maybe maybe my my viewpoint is skewed because I'm dealing with them every day. Right. But I think I think 40 to 50 million of them are either rock solid cult members or they are like they 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 support um the uh goals of the Republican Party cult and Trump. So then there are maybe 15 to 20 million who just voted Republican. Now, I will say this, though, Daniel, um, you can get, I mean, I'm a reformed gangbanger. You can save some of them from the gang. That's what I do every day is to try to put the truth in front of them. It's a long slog to try to convert them. But I think the bulk of the base is lost. Yeah. Well, why don't you share with us um, a little bit about your decision to mount the 2020 primary campaign against Trump and, and what? Um, and he felt and why you decided to, you know, to bow out at the end. I had turned against Trump. This was 2018. So I'm out there. I'm out there naked. I'm out there firing against him. Um, and it became clear to me in early 2019 that some Republican needed to primary him to tell the world, because I was still a Republican back then. I left the party a little over a year ago, but I, 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 I felt it was important for a Republican to challenge him in the primary and say, this is not what Republicans are. We believe in freedom, free opportunity. We're inclusive, all the rest. I encourage Mitt Romney, come on, Mitt, run. John Kasich, run. Somebody run. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times encouraging a Republican to run. Nobody would. And I get it. What a stupid thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so Emily, then I said, the heck with it. I'm going to do it. Um, if only to pound him every day and to say that he's not who we are. This is not what Republicans are. Now, I will say this. Did I think I was going to win? 
Probably not. Um, but oh my God, I got in and within a month after I got in, the Republican Party literally canceled 22 primaries and caucuses. Yeah. I mean, basically yeah. taking every almost every contest off the playing field. I did not anticipate that they would do that. Yeah. I remember that. And I, I was cheering that, for that you for what... Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, but I'm glad you did it. I mean, it take it takes courage and it takes willingness to know, you know, like you said, I'm not going to win, but I'm at least going to put myself out there. And I think um, we need more of that. And and to give people, again, that permission structure to say like, hey, you know, I don't have to go along with what the party's doing. There are other people who think like me, um, you know, and. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um. One of the things I also wanted to ask you about to that point earlier about the different um, buckets of where the GOP is right now in terms of the voters. Um, and we've talked a lot on this show over the last 10 weeks about kind of whether or not the different strategies that different groups like ours are pursuing right now. So you've kind of got the group trying to reform uh, the GOP from the inside, kind of this factionalization model. You got people talking about third parties, which are sort of in a different group. Then you've got others talking about temporarily being independent or temporarily even being uh, these red dog uh, Democrats or however we're describing them. How do you see that shaking out? And what do you see as, as the best path uh, forward uh, for, uh, amongst any of those ideas? Um. And none of us know, and it's it's important to do all of it. Um, okay. Again, I I tend to be uh, I tend to be gloomy on this. Mm-hmm. I I think the Republican Party as a national party is done. I think wow. it's died, and I don't think we realize it yet. I think it's becoming a very strong regional party. Yeah. Um, I don't think the Republican Party can be saved. Look, I think Trump's running in 2024. I know if if he can, he will. If he doesn't, some stupid Trumpy person is going to run. I know Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is going to try to sound like Trump. Uh, it, um, so, but so he's still Trump in Trumpism is still the party. So I'm not optimistic about the party. I wrote a piece two months ago. I think start a third party now. Most start a a radically centrist, common sense, get shit done party. That's where most Americans are. I'm not a Democrat, and I think the Democrats are going to continue to veer to the left. So I think, Daniel, and I could be dead wrong, (laughs) I think we're at one of these unique moments in American history where there's a real opportunity to start something new. It's going to be hard, but it's all going to be hard. Well, and that's why I'm so disappointed in some ways, because I feel like there was an opportunity and I, I, the timing of it's going to elude me, but there was a point at where it looked like as the maybe the establishment old guard Republicans were thinking about maybe maybe right after January 6th, then that maybe period of like 24, 48 hours where it looked like maybe there'd be a turn there and also where maybe Trump would take his group and go off and form. There was a couple articles about him going off and forming his party. I actually thought that put her, it would be the best thing possible. Um, <laughs> honestly, because that's probably the way the third party thing works is for someone like him to take a group and go um, because he'll have a huge following and then the establishment could kind of rebuild itself. But that didn't happen. And so now it, it becomes yeah challenging for a lot of reasons, obviously, to start a third party uh, from from scratch. But, uh, but I'll- and, and he, no, you're right. And, but Daniel and... 
he owns the base. He does. And that's he owns the base, and they're the most committed voters, the most active voters. They'll vote in the primary. Um, Adam Kinzinger and I got elected together in 2010 here in Illinois. Adam knows if Adam runs again next year, if he's up against a Trump endorsed candidate, Adam can't win a Republican primary. Liz Cheney, I mean, she's got the Cheney name. She'll be fine. Don't worry about Liz Cheney. But if she's up against a decent candidate, there's no way she wins in Wyoming. There's no room in the party right now for somebody like me or Liz Cheney. There just isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Which also means there's no room in the party for people like me. Yeah. <laughs> That's reality. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's reality. Yes. Right? <laughs> I, I jumped I jumped in a clubhouse last night that was kind of unpacking if Trump and DeSantis run, right? Like what is that dynamic gonna be between the two of them? And and they were kind of unpacking if, you know, would it be wise for DeSantis to break from Trump on the January sixth thing and the and the stolen election, or should he run on it? And I was saying, you know, with Biden Republicans, we were able to galvanize some a small sliver of Republicans that were willing to vote for Biden in this election, and I'm not sure they're going to do it again in 2024. Um, and the DNC was so wise to get care, you know, people like Kasich and um, Christine Todd Whitman to go to the DNC. I mean, that was so yeah. unlike anything I had ever seen before at a convention, and it was smart. Um, you know, I just think that if DeSantis runs on the stolen election thing, he doesn't have a, I, I don't know, I, I don't know, he doesn't have a chance, I don't think. But what do you think about that? I don't think it, it's an interesting thought, Emily. I think if DeSantis ran, look, look, we'll take Trump out of the picture for a yeah, moment. Yeah, you have yeah. to do that first. If, if, yeah, if right. if because if, 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 if Trump does run, nobody will challenge him for the nomination, and De, DeSantis won't either. None of the Trumpy, ambitious Trumpy people will. So, someone of your ilk might, because the field would be cleared, right, for everyone. But I mean, yeah. so right, yeah, right, yeah. Um, so, but, but then if, if Trump's out of the picture, Emily, I think in 2024, if you want the Republican party nomination, you got to be as Trumpy as possible. The Trumpy, I mean, the, and by the way, that's DeSantis's appeal right now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, obviously anybody's smarter than Trump. He's smarter than Trump, blah, blah, blah. But he's, people love him. The base loves him. Because what's he doing? He's just fighting. He fights and he's fighting on this culture war stuff. Um, so he's going to hug. He's gonna, You have to hug Trumpism as tightly as you can to win the nomination, I think. But do you think that he would isolate this like, okay, say Trump is not running and DeSantis is in there, um, that it would almost be to his advantage because he doesn't have the baggage of the Trump years. You know, he doesn't. He wasn't in Congress. There's not a lot on you know, uh, on record of him speaking out or or for certain things. I mean, he's been able to kind of be on his own island in Florida, that maybe he would be able to pull the Trumpy people. But then also, maybe people like me, if he doesn't go down the road of the stolen election and all of that, do you think that that would be to his electoral advantage to maybe not run on the... Emily, he's got to grab the base. Okay. And the base wants to hear... Maybe not that the election was stolen, but they want to hear that, oh, a lot of states did some funny stuff and we're going to, we're going to go after voter fraud and what happened in 2020 won't happen again. DeSantis knows he's got to put up crap like that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and, and I, I don't, Emily and Daniel, the three of us may be in a different place. I have publicly said that I will never, obviously never support Trump. 
I can never, ever support a Republican who supported Trump in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I understand. Maybe you guys aren't there, but I I can't. Um, So there is a split in the never Trumper world. Maybe a DeSantis could get you, Emily, if he did separate himself more. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, yeah. I, I'm not saying anything now because I really don't know. I think it's just going to come down to the moment and I'll have to weigh everything <laughs> out. Putting yourself out there for the DeSantis courting. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say, I mean, I would love, I mean, I, this is a little controversial. I would love if like Tim Scott, you know, I mean, I would just absolutely die if Romney, I mean, I would jump on that campaign ASAP, but I realize that's not possible. So it gets tricky, but. Um, anyway. Wait, Emily, you said you said Romney. You said Romney. I love Romney. Yeah, I mean Romney is Romney. Oh, I know. Yeah, he's always been my ideal candidate. I mean, we we didn't deserve him. That's why we never had him as president. He's too good. <laughs> <laughs> um, you and you and I can have an interesting conversation on Romney's down the road, but I agree on on much of what you say about him. Yeah. But I don't see how he could win no. a Republican Party primary. No, I agree. No. I agree. Agreed. I'm just saying, yeah. he could, realistically, he could become president. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. 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 I mean, I'm just saying, yeah, realistically, he could win a general election. But he can't win a primary. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Um, Joe, before we let you go, uh, share with us about your book um, and uh, all the <laughs> other things that you have going on uh, right now, and where people can connect with you and, and listen to you, and all those things. So my timing on a lot of things has just sucked. So I, 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 I put out a book that came out last spring when the pandemic hit. Um, yeah. And it was a, a book about how unfit Trump was. And I wrote it before he was impeached and before the pandemic. It's called F Silence, calling Trump out for the authoritarian cult leader he is. Um, uh, that came out a little over a year ago. Uh, right, I, I'm, I'm about to launch a couple new projects. But if anybody wants to follow me, follow me on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. I do have a podcast right now called F Silence, F as in Frank. Go to fsilencepodcast.com. And it's me doing this two or three times a week. Great. Well, um, Joe, it was so great having you on. It's so great to get, you know, we've had a lot of more than that. You guys are fun. <laughs> <laughs> we've had so, a lot. so much. Yeah, thanks. We Emily Daniel, you're awesome. <laughs> Thank you. We've had, I mean, a lot of the Never Trump guests on. And so, yeah, of course, you're Never Trump now, but we really haven't been able to to get into the Tea Party stuff as much. So um, you definitely had a lot to offer there. And we will definitely be following what you're doing. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Daniel. Anytime, guys. Thanks. All right. Our thanks again to Congressman Joe Walsh for joining us on the show today. Really appreciate his time and all that he shared with us. Hope you enjoyed it as well. I would encourage you to uh, go and follow him on Twitter at Walsh Freedom, and we will include all of the links to his podcast and book and everything else uh, in the show notes to this episode so you can find him there as well. If this is your first time joining us on the podcast, we really are appreciative of you being with us and would encourage you to go back now and listen to some of the other great guests and conversations that we've had over the course of this season. And uh, again, thank you so much for being with us. A reminder that you can always connect with us on Twitter. That's at what's underscore next underscore pod. And also you can email us what's next political pod at gmail.com. And if you're enjoying this show, if you would leave a rating or review 
in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We would really appreciate that. It helps others discover the show and lets us know what you like, what you don't, all those fun things. So thank you for doing that. All right, that's the end of our show today. On behalf of Emily Matthews, I'm Daniel Hare. Thank you again so much for being with us and we will see you next time on What's Next. next.